Amen. And those Praise Makes Wave shirts are also available for $47.99. If you don't sign up to help with the iHeart Springfield event, we sure would love your help. Um, we would just be thankful if you would stop out there, sign up. Those shirts will be available uh, next week, okay? Uh, we started two weeks ago, uh, we started a new series that we called Open Heart. And the idea behind Open Heart is very simply this. Um, it is opening up to the heart of each of the, the letters that Paul wrote and allowing the heart of those letters to speak to our heart. Okay, when I went to Central Bible College, a local Bible school that was in this area, when I first got the books for each of my classes, I decided I was going to hold on to those books. I decided I was going to keep them because nothing will ever happen to CBC, and it would be really good for me to remember everything that I experienced there, and CBC will always be around. And uh, so I held on to those books. I thought it would be good to start a library, right? I decided it would be the beginnings of something that would hopefully be for me that which I could study from. Of course, when I went, digital libraries weren't as big. And now at this point, I've moved over pretty much completely to digital library. And yet there's some books that I've held on to. There's some books that were meaningful to me. Those books that really kind of described or really showed a portion of my studies and those things, I, I didn't, even if I could get them digitally, I did not want them digitally. And, and so there's like Greek grammars and Hebrew grammars because that really was my time there. That's what I was biblical languages major, and so that was really who I was, and so I kept those. And, and then I started selling off the ones that I didn't want. One that I will never get rid of, and I have not gotten rid of, and I just refuse to, was written by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce is, uh, he was a Scottish, Scottish professor, Scottish scholar, and I think that's how he probably said it, but F.F. F. Bruce dedicated his life, focused on Paul. He loved Paul and Paul's writings, and so he dedicated, he, he spent his life examining how Paul spent his life. And so he spent all of his time studying about the background of Paul and the history of Paul and the letters Paul wrote. And he wrote book after book after book about it. Um, but then his magnum opus, his, his kind of like, perf like the perfection as he tried to boil down all of Paul into one book. He wrote a book in 1977 that was kind of that idea. And he named it Paul, the Apostle of the Free Spirit. And it was 1977, so when it moved over to the U.S., because it was originally released in the U.K., in the U.S., of course, that was during the hippie movement, and so you couldn't have, in good Christian circles, an apostle who had a free spirit, so they changed the name. And in the U.S., they re-released the book, and they called it Paul the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. See, F.F. F. Bruce got, and I believe really understood at a deep level that Paul was an apostle who understood what it meant to have a heart that wasn't set free. And then he grasped at a deep level what it meant to have a heart that was set free. 
So he wrote this book, and it's become his bestseller. It's what he's most known for. It's, it's obvious, and I will never, ever sell this book because it so perfectly describes and helps us to understand what Paul's heart was. And the idea behind Open Heart is that we're going to open to the heart of these letters. Uh, last two weeks ago, we opened to the heart of Colossians, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, those couple of verses that really are the heart of each of these letters and allow the heart of that letter to speak to our heart. And so today we're going to continue on with that series, but I want to just set it up by saying this. I want to set it up by saying that the passage of scripture we're going to read today is a passage of scripture that I memorized really early on in my faith. And yet, I think from a really early stage, I got the fact that it was deeper than I was understanding, if that makes sense. And I loved the scripture, and I quoted the scripture, and I used the scripture over and over and over again. But I think I always understood that there was more to it than I was really kind of understanding at the time. And so, the best description I could think of this is if I were to give you a piece of property. Say I had 79 acres of land. And I tried selling it, and I couldn't sell it. So then I tried auctioning it, and I couldn't auction it. So then I tried splitting it up and auctioning it again, and I couldn't auction it. Nobody was buying it over and over. I, and, and just completely random piece of 79 acres, not referring to anything in particular. I'm not bitter or anything like that. But 79 acres of land. Say then I decided I'm going to give you this 79 acres of land. It's a beautiful 79 acres of land. It has a pond and has rolling hills and just beautiful valleys, gorgeous piece of property. Say I were to give this piece of property to you free. You don't have to pay taxes on it. I'll even pay the taxes for you. And so you take this piece of property and you love it. You, you learn it. You go over the top of it. You run around it. You know everything about this piece of property. You eventually build a house on this property. You raise kids on this property. You grow a garden on this property. And you dance on this property because it was free. I mean, that's what you're going to do. You love it. And then many years later, you stop and you go, I wonder what's under this property. So you decide to dig down. And you find oil. And all this time, you've been dancing around on the top of this property. There was this incredible, rich source underneath it. And you were missing out on all of it. That's the way I feel about this verse. Because today we're in the heart of Galatians. Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. So if you would grab your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 2. And this is something I don't always do, but it's part of the series. I want to just start with prayer. And here's what I want to pray, pray is just even as we're grabbing our Bibles and we're opening them up this morning to the heart of Galatians. This verse that really informs and speaks to and pulls from the rest of Galatians. That even as we're opening it up, just like we're opening this book, that God right now would take each of our hearts and open them up. And he would take this scripture and really work it into our hearts. That's what I want to pray, okay? Pray with me if you would. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the... I thank you for the fact that you desire deeply for us to be people with a heart set free. And you desire deeply for us to be a people who understand what it means, what Christ did for us. 
And so, Father, just like Paul, I pray that for any in here who this morning uh, uh, just feel like they're behind bars, like feel like their hearts are just kind of held back. God, I pray this morning would be a breath of freedom to them, just right to their hearts. And Lord, if there is anything within our hearts which is not of you, God, touch that thing right now and work in us. Use this scripture to change us, I ask, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 2.20, here's what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a very personal portion of Scripture. In one verse, Paul says, I or me, seven times. Seven times in one little verse. And if you back up to the last verse, he says it another two times. And if you back up to the verse before that, he says it another four times. Which means within three verses, he says, I or me, something like 13 times. This is personal for Paul. He's not just talking to the Galatian churches. He's not just talking about some deep theological truth. He's talking, Paul is talking about Paul. And up to this point, even as you're reading through Galatians, he talks and gives this for like a chapter and a half to two chapters. I'm not going to read it all. But he gives this kind of like personal history after he accepts Christ, the path that he walks in order to write this letter, where he came from and where he's going to. And right before this, he talks about a moment where he butted heads with Peter the Apostle. Okay? And a Apparently, it was really more Paul butting heads with Peter. Galatians isn't written to one church in one city. It's written to Galatia as a province, and so there's lots of cities and lots of churches. And so it was probably intended to be to all those churches, but apparently there was a situation in one of those churches in one of those cities called Antioch where Paul, or Peter, Paul was there, but Peter when, when, he was, when he first got there, he was like, cool, eating with all of the people who didn't grow up as Jewish. They, they grew up Gentiles, so they grew up outside of the Jewish faith. And so he wasn't worried about being kosher. He was okay eating with them. But then along come some people who did have that historical background of being Jewish. This is all background, so I'm just kind of setting it up as quickly as I can. Along come these guys, probably from Jerusalem or somewhere. And, and, and as soon as that happens, Peter's like, I'm going to sit with them. Like right out of high school cafeteria or middle school cafeteria, he's like, see you later, losers. And he goes and sits with them, and he leaves behind all of these people, and he sets this example. He's just being a hypocrite. So it says Paul calls him out. And he didn't just call him out. He didn't call him out like personally. He called him out in front of them. That's what the scripture says. Like he in front of everyone says, Peter, you're in the wrong. Now, I am so thankful for the leadership here at Praise Assembly. We've got a great group of people who are on the board. And sometimes I come up with some pretty terrible ideas. Like maybe we could put like Praise Assembly, one year of only 5% tithe on our sign and see if people start coming to praise. And they shoot me down. Like, very nicely, though. They go, hey, Alan, um, that's not a great idea. Or I was just talking to Pastor Nathan a moment ago, and I thought, what if we gave a scholarship to every student who sits on the front row? 
front row scholarship. Anyway, so, so, but they don't call me out in public. And, and when I'm with the staff, like, a lot of times what I love about our staff is that we're, we are one team, no exceptions. Like, we are moving the same direction all together, and I love that. But that means there are times when we have to say, okay, you could do this better. But what I love about it is that we don't do it in front of people. Like, I don't get up in front of you and say, okay, now here's where everybody failed this week and share it with everybody, right? Unless somebody says amen as a man, and then I call it out in front of everybody because you cannot do that. But in general, we keep those things kind of between us. And for us, that's important and that's healthy. For Paul, he calls out Peter in front of the entire church, and there's a reason for it. But not only does he do that, I love what Paul does. He then writes a letter and includes the whole situation and sends it out to all the churches. And then it becomes known, or it's the word of God, becomes scripture. And for all time, Peter's mistake is like laid out for everybody to see. I wonder if in heaven, Peter went to Paul and said, thanks a lot, Paul. (laughs) Great job. But Paul is very clear here. That there is something that has changed. And so after this discussion about how his life went, and then he talks about Peter and Peter's mistake, then immediately on the heels of that, he goes very personal. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And this is very deep. And for decades, and for centuries, and for millennia, People have been trying to figure out exactly what Paul said when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And let me be really clear that if it's taken centuries and millennia to figure this out or even to keep digging into it, we're not going to be able to completely dig to the depths of what Paul is saying when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. But I do believe that in Genesis chapter 32, it says Jacob wrestled with God. And there's no way you're going to get God to submit. God's not going to tap out. You're not going to win that battle. So Jacob wrestles with God, and then God touches him on the hip. And from then on, Jacob walked differently. And from then on, Jacob, in fact, he was renamed Israel. And I believe that if we wrestle with this just a little bit, we're not going to wrestle this scripture into submission. But I believe the Lord will touch our hearts and will walk differently afterwards. And just taking this scripture and working it over and thinking it through and digging into the depths of it will be changed, okay? But it says, I have been crucified with Christ. And while I would say that we don't fully know what this means, and a lot of people have tried to figure out exactly what it means and to spell it out, and there's all different kinds of directions that people have gone with, I have been crucified with Christ. Here's, here, there's certain things that I know Paul isn't saying. Okay, Paul says, essentially, that there were four things that were nailed to the cross. First is Jesus. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Second was there was a sign that said, King of the Jews. Third, we know that the record of our debt of sin was nailed to the cross. We read it last week, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailed it to the cross, which is an incredible thought. 
He took the legal document that included the record of our debt, of our sins, and he nailed it to the cross. Man, that's an overwhelming thought. But this is not just referring to the the record of debt. This is referring to something more than that. Because he says there was a fourth thing that was nailed to the cross. He says, you and me. We somehow, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, we also with him, I have been crucified with Christ. And the depths of that, again, I don't fully grasp all that it means. But Paul keeps talking and he gives us a little bit more of an idea of what he's talking about. He says, I for I have been crucified with Christ. And then he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Watchman Nee, when he was trying to interpret what Paul says when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He said, Paul's not talking about suffering here, okay? And Watchman Nee would know a thing or two about that. If you don't know who Watchman Nee was, he was a leader in the Chinese church. And through the communist revolution in China, he was thrown in prison and remained there until the day he died for 20-plus years as a result of his faith. He knew a thing or two about suffering. But he said here, this isn't when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. He's not referring to the suffering. What he is referring to, he said, is the finality. Okay, he says the finality of being crucified with Christ. And Paul says, it is no longer I who live. Like there's something fundamental that has changed for Paul, when it says, I have been crucified with Christ, now he says, I no longer live. A.W. Tozer, when he was trying to kind of communicate what this is talking about, he says, a person who's hanging on the cross, there's really three things about them. Number one, they can't turn around. They're only facing one direction. Right? You can't change the direction you're going. Two, you can't turn around. And he said, three, you have no plans of your own. So here... Paul is saying, very clearly, he's saying, I've left something behind. Let me tell you what he hasn't left behind. His personality. Because he was crucified with Christ doesn't mean his personality changes. Y'all have a ton of personality, and that's a good thing. That's not something that we leave behind as a part of becoming Christians, as a part of being crucified with Christ. That doesn't mean we lose our personality. Our personality comes with us. But Paul does say, I've left something else behind. And he talks about it later on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, I'm not going to boast for Paul. It was the law. For Paul, his horizon prior to Christ was filled with understanding and working his way through the law to God, okay? But he says, when Jesus Christ was crucified and when I was crucified, I leave that behind. It's gone. I won't boast in anything else because the world has been crucified to me and I to it. So there's no going back. He says, I've left that behind. And this is coming right after he talks to Peter and says, Peter, what are you thinking? We've been down this road. 
It is for freedom that we've been set free. Why would we allow ourselves to be put again into the yoke of slavery? He says, that's gone. It's in the past. And now he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Where before his horizon was filled with the law, now his horizon is filled with Christ. I'm convinced that there are certain things that Jesus is terrible at. Jesus is terrible. Yep, I said it. There are certain things that Jesus will never be good at. Jesus is terrible at being a mascot. You know what a mascot is? Usually have a big head, normally made out of foam, and people identify with it. They say, I'm a razorback, or I'm a tiger, or I'm a cornhusker. What in the world is a cornhusker? I'm a boomer sooner. I'm a buckeye. And we identify with it. But the thing about mascots is that they're supposed to stay on the sideline until there's like a lull in the intensity, until there's like no longer like the games, it's halftime. So the mascot gets trotted out into the middle of the field and it fires everybody up. And then as soon as the game starts again, the mascot is again relegated to the sideline. Jesus is a terrible mascot. Abraham Kuiper said about this, he said, there is not a square inch in all of the domain of human existence over which the Christ who is sovereign over all does not declare mine. So if Jesus is a mascot, you know what kind of mascot he is? He's the kind of mascot who in the middle of the game, when they're in the huddle, he runs into the middle and says, what's up guys, what you talking about? Or he's the mascot that right as the basketball players, LeBron's going up to dunk it. He runs into the middle of the court, smacks it down, and says, not in my house, Bron. (laughs) You cannot relegate Jesus Christ to the sideline. And Paul here says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. It's all of it. Jesus is terrible at being a mascot. He's also terrible at being a relic. You know what a relic is? Relic is something from history that then every now and then we pull out in order to receive a blessing from. Jesus is terrible at being a relic. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says that he is the power of God. You can't say that that's just in history. And for Paul, he says, what does he say? Christ lives in me. Not historically, I look back to where Christ is. He is currently living inside of me. This is a daily thing. You cannot relegate Jesus to a byline in history. You know what else he's terrible at? Being an additive. You know what I mean on this? Go down the cereal aisle. See the marshmallow-flavored something or other leprechaun cereal that says, now with added fiber. It's marshmallow leprechaun cereal. You can't add fiber and somehow make it healthy. And I don't know if what people told you or how you accepted Christ, but if somebody told you, you just need to add Christ, man, you were lied to. 
What does he say? He says, it is no longer I who live. It's not I'm living and Jesus is here with me. No, Colossians 3.11 says that Jesus Christ is all in all. How do you take all in all and add that to anything without removing the other thing first? Jesus is terrible at being an additive. So Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My whole life, everything, my whole horizon is Christ now. Why would I go back to the way it was? Why would I make myself again subject to slavery when I have tasted freedom? Jesus Christ is terrible at being a mascot, a relic, or an additive. In fact, he's terrible at anything that you try to relegate him to. Jesus refuses to be relegated. Paul says he is everything. He's all I've got. And then he continues on. He says the life uh, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That word faith there is a key word. And I think, boy, that boils down the gospel for us, doesn't it? I live by faith. And I would say that we would regularly say that Jesus is the only way that we can approach the Father, right? We would say that. We get that. I understand that. I believe that. But I think a lot of times we think it's enough to just believe it. Because we think that faith is just mental assent to some truth. Faith is way more than just saying, I believe something. I believe that Jesus is God. No, that's not faith. Faith is more than believing. It is dependence. Okay, so Paul says here, now the life I'm living, I'm living completely and utterly dependent upon the Son of God. This is different than just paying mental assent or saying, I believe it. God is not just looking for us to believe some truth. He is looking for the truth to make us true. He is looking for the truth to make us true. See, some people would say, I don't live by faith in anything. I just trust that I can do it myself. What do you think you're doing? You have faith in yourself. You're saying, I can accomplish everything that I need to accomplish. That is faith in me. I am depending on my own abilities. And guess what? That's right where Paul was. He said, oh, I depended on myself. And guess what? It was shackles on my heart. He said, but not anymore. Now I depend in Christ Jesus. And all, I rely on him and I pour it all out on him and I trust completely and entirely. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And some of us, again, we would pay mental assent. We would say, oh yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And and we would say that that's faith. Have you ever prayed that prayer? The prayer that goes something like this. Well, God, I'm tired of being condemned. Tired of the condemnation. I'm tired of the guilt. I'm tired of being tired of the guilt. I'm tired of the condemnation, oh God. So, Lord, help me to be better. Lord, help me 
to live better for you so the condemnation can be gone. I know the prayer because I've prayed it probably hundreds of times. Do you know where the faith is with that prayer? It's not in God. It's in me. Because what I'm saying there is that the source of condemnation or the lack thereof is in my ability to do good. Even if I say, God, help me to be better so that I don't experience condemnation. The answer to condemnation is not doing better works with the help or the power of God. The answer to condemnation is from faith in the finished work of God. So, so when I feel condemned, it's not that I trust in my ability or even pray, God, help me in order to do better. Instead, it is just recognizing that Jesus Christ paid the price and he was on the cross and somehow my sins were fully and completely nailed to the cross. So condemnation, the answer to it comes from faith only in the Son of God. And hear that this morning. Because, boy, I catch myself praying that prayer over and over and over again. And essentially what I'm saying to God is, God, help me to earn righteousness. How can he answer that? God will, every time we trust in ourselves, God will allow us to come to the end of ourselves. And he'll allow us to come to that point so that we can turn only and completely to faith in him. Here he says, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then he says, who loved me and who gave himself for me. Isn't that the gospel message there too? Isn't that John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the gospel in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Eight words. This is Ephesians 2 4. For God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is the gospel message in eight words. He loved and gave himself. And yet there's a fundamental difference between this verse and John 3.16. There's a fundamental difference between this verse and Ephesians 2.4. I don't know if you caught it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Or Ephesians 2.4, the great love with which he loved us. This is first person singular. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. guarantee you if we had the original letter right here there would be tear stains all around these words because Paul doesn't say he just loved the world 
for he just loved us. For Paul, this is intensely personal. And he says, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. And this is the source of everything that comes before it. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Why do all of these things come? Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. I don't know if you're hearing it, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to somebody in this room right now and has been this entire service to say, if it was only you, Jesus Christ still would have come and still died on the cross. Why? Because he loves you. And if there had been no one else, it still would have happened. Paul says, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. So he looks at his own life and he looks at his history and he looks to what came before. And he says, why would I go back to the law? Why? He loved me and he gave himself for me. Why? I'm leaving it behind. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think... For Paul, the things that he left behind, and believe me, we have not exhausted yet what Paul was saying when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. But this is a part of it. And what Paul is saying here is I'm leaving behind all that old stuff. And he says, man, I used to boast in it. I'm not saying the law was bad. He's saying, he's saying what, what I used to boast in, I'm leaving all that stuff behind because it has no hold anymore. And then when it came down to it, it shackled my heart and I have been set free from it. 